This is the Daily Signal podcast for Monday, July 8th. I'm Robert Bluey. And I'm Virginia Allen. Today, we share Rob's interview with Chris Wright, Darian Diachuk, and Jennifer Zung, three individuals who are speaking out boldly against the rise of socialism in America. Darian and Jennifer tell incredibly powerful stories about their own experiences, but some of the content is graphic and not appropriate for small children. We encourage you to exercise your discretion if kids are around. Also on today's episode, we have your letters to the editor, and I'll bring you this week's good news story about one American soldier's bravery and sacrifice. Before we begin today's show, Virginia and I wanted to tell you about one of our favorite podcasts. That's right, Rob. It's called Heritage Explains, and it is a weekly podcast that explains all the policy issues we hear about in the news in a way that's easy to understand. Each week, Heritage Explains hosts Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher pick a topic that you've been hearing about in the news and then help explain why it matters with the help of a Heritage Foundation expert. If you want to know what is really going on at our southern border or what the passage of the Equality Act would mean for all Americans, then subscribe to Heritage Explains. It answers the tough questions on the topics making headlines. They are quick and entertaining, too. In just about 10 minutes, you will be up to speed and in the know. Virginia, I really do think it's one of the best policy podcasts out there, and it's brought to you from the world's leading think tank. I agree. You can find Heritage Explains on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. They even put the full episode on YouTube. We hope you enjoy it as much as the Daily Signal podcast. Now, stay tuned for our show coming up next. We are joined in the Daily Signal podcast today by Chris Wright, Darian Diachak, and Jennifer Zung. Darian and Jennifer both have experience with communism and have graciously agreed to share their stories on the Daily Signal podcast with our audience. And Chris Wright is somebody who is doing phenomenal work in getting the message out about the horrors of communism through the anti-communism action team. Welcome to all three of you, and thank you for being with us. Thanks for having us, Rob. Chris, I'd like to begin with you. Can you tell us about the anti-communism action team and the work that you do? Sure. In 2013, my Alexandria Tea Party had a big program. Dr. Lee Edwards from Your Heritage Foundation was one of our speakers, and it was all about survivors of communism. I went on to form a separate entity, the Anti-Communism Action Team, in 2014 to formalize the activity. We added the Speakers Bureau in 2016. We have both survivors of communism from Cuba, Bulgaria, Vietnam, China, uh, Ukraine, as well as subject matter experts who now appear uh, on the radio in several states. Uh, we've been in front of classrooms and groups. And my speakers have a very powerful message. We've been down the socialist road, and we we know what's at the end of it, so Americans better wake up. Chris, I, I want you to also put this in perspective because – we are living in a time when socialism is getting a lot of attention or, or democratic socialism, as, as some people prefer to call it. Uh, you have described to me Marxist theory and how socialism fits in in the realm of, of that theory and how it, it is the step before communism. Can you just explain briefly to our listeners uh, what that Marxist theory is like and where socialism does fall? Sure. Marx saw stages of history, inevitable stages of history. Feudalism, capitalism, socialism, and communism. Socialism is the stage 
Before the final stage, socialism is characterized by the common ownership of the means of production. Communism is when the state withers away because there's no more dominant class, no more private property. You don't need a state because there's no more economic exploitation. And so that's a great fantasy, but it's never happened anywhere. One of our speakers from Ukraine has a joke about all this. He says, what comes after socialism? Communism. What comes after communism? Alcoholism. <laughs> well, uh, we have with us today in our studio uh, two people who uh, have told incredibly personal stories, which I've had uh, the benefit of hearing, and I want our listeners to to better understand. Um, they are, in, in many cases, uh, heart-wrenching and tragic, and I, I really thank you both for being here and, and being willing to share and talk about your experiences. I, Jennifer, I'd like to begin with you. Uh, you're somebody who was born in China. Uh, you uh, were arrested four times. You were held as a prisoner in a labor camp. Uh, you were able to escape that camp and, and leave China. Can you tell our listeners what it was like, that experience, how you ended up in that camp, and then we'll we'll get to um, your your ability to escape and and now share your story with millions of people across the world. I was arrested, yeah, like you said, four times and sent for to the Beijing female labor camp for practicing a spiritual uh, practice called Falun Gong. It uh, it is a spiritual practice based on truth, compassion, forbearance, and uh, plus five sets of gentle exercises, including meditation. And because it's very health obvious health benefit, within seven years, there were more Falun Gong practitioners in China than Communist Party members. So at that stage in 1999, the party decided to crack down on it. So I ended up in the Beijing female labor camp. And the first day, like I just said, was feeling like going directly into the hell. So for the first moment, we were forced to squat under the baking sun for 15 hours. And whenever someone couldn't endure it and fainted away, they were shocked by electric bantons so that they could wake up. So every day in the camp, it was a battle between life and death. And only very recently, I realized actually in June, in June 17th, I was in London uh, in the China, in the independent China tribunal. They handed out their final judgment about this organ harvesting transplant. And they gave the verdict that the Communist Party is guilty of anti-communist, anti-humanity crime. So I only realized that I had a very narrow escape from being a victim of this organ harvesting because I had hepatitis C. But while I was in the camp, apart from torture every day, apart from hard forced labor, we were also given repeated physical checkups so that uh, if anyone needed an organ, we could be killed on demand if we were a match. And I, uh, fortunately, I told the doctor I had hepatitis C before I practiced Falun Gong, so I doubt whether that's the factor. I was able to be exempted from becoming a victim of organ harvesting. You, well, in the camp, uh, experienced both brainwashing and me- so mental uh torture and and physical torture. Um, Many of the people in the camp were were sexually assaulted, raped, 
can you share what some of those things that you observed and, and, and endured were like? Yes. Uh, actually, on the second day of uh, me in the camp, two police officers dragged me from the cell to the court, threw me on the ground, and applied two electric bantams all over my body until I lost consciousness. And the torture I experienced and I saw was beyond description. I saw a female Falun Gong practitioner was tied to a chair and she was shocked by four or five male of police guards on her head and on her private part until she lost control of her bowel movement. As a result, as a result she couldn't walk for several months. And they also would tie four toothbrush together and with the sharp end outside and push this thing inside the vagina of Falun Gong pra- female Falun Gong practitioners and twist it, twist it until they saw blood came out. And the police would also throw females into the male prisoner's cells to have them repeatedly gang raped. So this kind of thing happened in the camp. And I think the worst part for me in the camp is the brainwashing part. They force us to, um, because the police made it very clear, the, ver- the only purpose for you to be sent there is to get you reformed, which means to change our minds towards Falun Gong. So we were forced not only to uh, give up our beliefs in truth, compassion, and tolerance, but also to help the police to torture our fellow Falun Gong practitioners in order to prove that we were transformed. After, I think, I spent six months in the camp, I suddenly developed such a strong desire to write a book to expose this all because when I was there, I couldn't, I couldn't believe this was happening in the 21st century. I thought this could only happen in a Nazi concentration camp. This should have already become part of the history. It couldn't be present, but it is still happening. But to, to write a book, uh, I have to be get released. But if I don't prove to the police I had to be transformed, I couldn't be released. So every day the struggle within my mind of whether to, to transform or not to transform nearly killed me for another thousand times. And little by little I was forced to, to do all the things the police asked me to do in order to, to, to prove that I have reformed. And little by little I feel like becoming uh, empty in the human shell, uh, actually with my, with my very essence of a human being being taken away, like your thoughts, your soul, your free will, and your human dignity. I feel like a non-human being and doing whatever they force us to do. And that was a very, very disgraceful process. And worse still, after I was released, they still expected me to go to the brainwashing centers to use to be used as an example of reform and to continue to help them to do the reform job. 
So I had to escape from my own family only five days of after I was released. It's just terrible. You were able to get asylum, though. Uh, how were you able to flee China and escape this terror? I think in this regard, I was um, luckier than many of my fellow practitioners. I had very good education. I graduated from Peking University with a Master of Science degree. I spoke good English. So I met an Australian couple who went to China to teach English. I tell them how terribly my situation was and how terribly I was in the need to leave China. So they were able to help me to get out of uh, China. So I sought asylum in Australia and was granted refugee status. Well, we are so blessed that you're with us today. We're going to get back to your book and the movie uh, and the work that you're doing. I do want to ask Darian to share his story. Uh, Darian, uh, you uh, were able to escape from Ukraine as as, as an infant. Uh, you're somebody who's also the witnessed communist governments uh, through your work with uh, USAID. Tell us about your own experience and what it has uh, helped you to understand about communism. Actually, um, I have two sources of experience with communism. The first one was through my extended family. We escaped uh, from, uh, from the Red Army as the Red Army was closing in towards the end of World War II. Uh, and uh, my parents, uh, once we we we're extremely lucky to, to have made it to the United States because I think the statistics are that only one out of about 12 people who were escaping from Eastern Europe actually made it to the West. They were picked up uh, everywhere. Uh, the NKVD had forward units waiting for, for, for people. Uh, matter of fact, my, my parents ran into uh, forward, forward NKVD units but were able to give them the slip. So we were extremely fortunate to have made it to the States. And once we got here, um, we had, uh, uh, people started telling stories, I guess every, every Christmas, every Easter, um, um, escapees would get together and just talk about their experiences, how lucky they were, how some, something happened, like they got on the last train or a pistol didn't fire or something, how they were able all to escape. So my brother and I listened to these stories over the years, and uh, my wife one day said, uh, who's not Ukrainian, she said, uh, as I told her one of the stories, she said, you should write a book about this. <laughs> so uh, I decided to do that. Um, and uh, my your, your book is called Escapes, for those yes. listeners who might be interested. Right. And uh, <clears throat> the book is interesting in, the, in that, that my extended family had... Uh, they were represented pretty much on in every aspect of the of World War II. My father was was a Polish officer fighting against the Germans. I had two uncles who were in the Red Army. I had another uncle who was picked up by the Red Army and I mean by the Reds and tortured and 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 all of that. So we have direct experiences with the uh, um, with with the communist takeover. There was one particular day in which everybody was invited or actually ordered into the town square for a major announcement. We didn't know what it was. No one knew what it was for. I hadn't been born yet. My parents didn't know what it was for. They brought out all of the town leaders, the postmaster, the mayor, the vice mayor, everybody who, um, who was in the town council, and they shot them in front of everybody. 
and they announced the new era where all of your uh, uh, bourgeois tormentors uh, have been taken care of, and now we will live in a in a new communist system. So uh, they they had experienced things like that. That was that's one aspect. The other aspect is returning to the to the former Soviet Union later as a uh, uh, as part of uh, part of the reform effort from uh, USAID and and uh, other other international agencies, and to discover. Uh, what the devastation was and how and uh, in what the Soviet system left behind after it collapsed, you know what um, not 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 only uh, in the uh, in in the the infrastructure that didn't work, uh, not only in the environment that was ravaged, uh, but also in people's thinking, and and, and also in in the lack of institutions, uh, the the daily institutions which we take for granted. All of which were 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 broken and destroyed under communism. Just the total human devastation, in a way. We saw kind of the effects of of what it was, of what the communist system actually did, and uh, we were faced with, what do we do next? What do we do first? And you you tell about how. The picture that sometimes we see on the outside that's painted by either the state-run media or that those communist countries like to project is quite different from what you have experienced uh, up close and personal. Can you share with us the experiences, an experience that may come to mind that would help our listeners better understand why it's not so rosy, uh, the picture that sometimes is painted? At USAID, we had uh, had counterparts. We had local counterparts. I was an energy, so I had an energy counterpart. Uh, one day he was called off. Uh, he, he, he got a phone call that his, uh, his daughter was bitten in school. And he immediately, we were very concerned that, that she was hurt. He, apolog- he left, and we later learned that he had to apologize uh, and to pay a huge fine because obviously uh, in, in a communist society, dogs represent power. They represent uh, the authority. And if the dog bit the girl, she must have been misbehaving. This to us was such a shock. We couldn't, we could, we could, we couldn't imagine this. <clears throat> but uh, there were many other, uh, on, a, on a more professional level, um, what, we were, what we were discovering uh, was that there was an o- overall pervasive sense of, of, of corruption. Uh, and it came from the system um, which which didn't work, uh, and so people had to be corrupt in order to in order to in order to satisfy their daily needs. In the in the centrally planned in a centrally planned economy, um, uh, everybody's needs are supposed to be taken care of, and the central uh, and the central authorities cannot make any mistakes. They are they are infallible, and so you have to make do with with, with what they have planned for you. And the central planned economy always has difficulty in in finding out exactly what people's needs are, how many people need what, what what people's shoe sizes are, everything else. In a centrally planned economy, all those kinds of things simply uh, cannot be done cannot be done efficiently. Consequently, uh, people do not get what they need, and they have to they have to learn to barter for things. You have to do things under the table. You're not allowed to barter for anything because that's going against the state. You, If you barter for anything, 
that means that uh, you are uh, you are you are a private entrepreneur who is working against the state. So you're not allowed to barter, but you have to provide for your family. Your family needs milk. They need food and it's not available. So you have to wheel and deal. So the whole system became completely corrupt. People learn to be corrupt. That's on a personal, I mean, that's on a, that's on a daily, daily consumer level. People learn to be corrupt uh, on, on a, on a, on a more professional or a more, let's call it a more, more industrial level. Everyone had to, uh, every company, every firm had quotas that they had to reach. If they didn't reach those quotas, the consequences were horrendous. They could be sent to Siberia. They could be shot. So meeting your quotas was extremely like it was, it was life and death. But the central planning system never gave you exactly what you needed to make the quotas for the same reasons I discovered, I, I, I discussed earlier was the central planning system couldn't foresee the needs of every single, of every single, let's say, uh, radio manufacturer. They didn't get it right, but yet you had the quota. So people learned to wheel and deal, to, to, to barter under the table in order, in order to make the quotas. So the whole system also became corrupt in the sense that they were working against the communist system to satisfy the communist system. And it got to the point where, uh, where uh, people simply did not, uh, uh, people just um, found shortcuts in order to satisfy to satisfy the system, if if you were supposed to produce things in in tonnage, like you had to produce a certain number of tons of of of, of irons or, or or radios or 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 uh, or any kind of household equipment, they would add huge amounts of metal to it just simply to increase the weights, so that the uh, so that they would meet the quotas. And everybody knew that this was that they were producing junk. But yet the quotas were made, and uh, no one no one really took their job that terribly seriously. The object was to make the quota and not to produce anything of value. There were really weird examples through the Soviet Union uh, where people would have quotas to produce certain kinds of trucks, and the next and the the the, the next factory over needed. Uh, broken up trucks, needed, needed wrecks. So they would take these trucks straight off of the, uh, straight off of the, the assembly line, drive them a mile and then destroy them and deliver them to the next factory, which needed, which needed junked trucks. And people did not question that. If you question that, you were questioning the wisdom of the party and that was punishable by all sorts of things. So the whole system became crazy uh, and uh, and this is what people learned. How people, the, the, this is the environment in which people learn to operate. So that when we got there, the uh, the, the ex-Soviets that we were working with were very very attuned to what the party wanted, because missing that was life and death. So when we were talking to them, they were all they were very uh, uh, they're very attuned to what. They thought we wanted to hear. They pretended to be on board with us, but then at the first opportunity, they'd go around us and simply, uh, you know, and try to exploit the system for everything it was worth. 
Well, Darian, thank you so much for for sharing those real life experiences. That is just incredible to hear, and it's uh, it's disheartening on some level that uh, the generational effects are are still there. I want to ask both of you about the books that you've written, and, and Jennifer, in your case, also the documentary. Can you tell us about uh, those those books, and not only um, what what can, is contained in them, but how our listeners can go about learning more about them? Uh, yes, I finished writing my autobiography uh, detailing what's happening on a day-to-day basis in the labor camp. So the book is called Witnessing History, One Woman's Fight for Freedom of, of uh, for Freedom at Falun Gong. So the U.S. version is available on Amazon so people can search for that. I also have a Chinese version called in Chinese, Jin Shui Liu Shen. So it's always it's also available on Amazon, and the Australian version is available on my publisher's website, Alien Nawen. So witnessing history, one woman's fight for freedom and Falun Gong, and uh, there is also a documentary about my story called Free China. So if you search for Free Free China plus Jennifer Zheng, you will be able to, I think, go to the. Uh, website of Free China. Uh, actually, it's freechinamovie.com, one word, freechinamovie.com. So you are able to watch the uh, documentary on the front page of that website. So it's, I think, up to now, my maybe work, uh, my book is the only available one in English. Uh, detail what happened to Falun Gong practitioners inside the labor camp. Actually, this year marked the 20th anniversary of what's happening in China, and the scale of the persecution is so huge. 100 million Falun Gong practitioners plus their families. Now we are are hearing about millions of Uyghurs also be detained in Xinjiang camps. But because, because I think the world failed to stop the persecution of Falun Gong. Now the party has the ability to expand that to other uh, uh, minority groups and uh, actually to the entire nation. The entire nation is under very strict monitoring of the party. And so I think my book has a very, uh, I think, significant importance to uh, to be the first-hand account of what's really happening inside the camp. And it is current, and it's, it is helping the world to know what's really happened. For example, several days ago, I saw a, a program uh, by BBC. They, were, they and several other media, media were allowed after many years of calling uh, to go inside one of the re-education camps in Xinjiang to film. And they ended up making a, docu- a, a, a film of, I think, about eight minutes. So, but after watching that movie, as someone who had been in one of very similar places, I, I, I knew how fake that program was and how you should look at them. So I, I did a, a YouTube uh, program about myself to discuss uh, three small stories, and especially about how the police managed to fake everything inside the camp. When I was there, no foreign uh, reporters were allowed inside the camp. But they even uh, 
deceive their fellow police officers from other camps. So if they are uh, even deceiving their fellow uh, police officers and their supervisors from the labor camp system, what would you expect them to assure you the real thing of the labor camp to a foreign journalist? So I think my book and my story is still very, very relevant because this is still happening on a very large scale in China. And I hope more people uh, can learn my story and uh, understand how serious this situation there. And it's really millions of people's life are at stake. So I think we, I hope we, the world can stop this. Thank you for having the courage to share it and to tell that story. It is incredibly powerful. Darian, I want to ask about your book. It's called Escapes. Uh, tell us about why you chose to write it. Yes, thank you. <clears throat> we were passing uh, a building that reminded me very much of uh, the train station from which my parents escaped. And I began, began reminiscing to my wife on the way to a New Year's Eve party about how my parents had to stand four days and four nights in a in the last train that was available before the before the Red Army closed in, and how the train was attacked by a uh, by a red fighter, and some of the wagons were actually uh, were actually caught on fire. And I told I was telling her the story, and she said, "My goodness, uh, don't don't let that go to waste. That has to be put down. That has to be recorded for history." That's how it started. Let me ask you, at a time when it seems that there is an increasing interest in socialism, particularly among young people here in the United States of America, what is your message to them based on your own experience? And what would you like them to know and think about and reflect upon as you've experienced these horrors of, of communist governments that embrace the principles of socialism? My father once said that uh, communism is like a bouquet of flowers with a hidden dagger. Uh, I think for me, I really would like to recommend uh, a series of articles editorial from the Epoch Times called How the Specter of Communism is Ruling Our World. I think it discussed many phenomena of how the communism, actually, uh, the specter of communism is using both violent ways and unviolent ways uh, to try to rule this world. So in the West, they are trying to uh, change their names into different names, but the essence is the same. So as someone who was a victim of the communism, I really want people to know what their if you really adopted communism, what life could be, that is what I had experienced. I think in the early days when the Communist Party just founded in China, they, they also uh, talk about freedom, talk about equality, talk, talk about everybody living in a heaven-like communism society. And many young people also get deceived. They went to Yang'an, the sacred place of communism. But if you look at the history, many of them ended up being killed by the party. And all their families, all their children, they all suffered for generations uh, after generations they suffer. And under communist 
party in China, eight, 80 million people died of unnatural death. And that's all the result of communism. Like Chris said, socialism is only the primary stage of communism. So actually, uh, officially or theoretically, uh, theoretically so China now is not a communist country yet. It's, it's still a so socialism with Chinese characteristics. So officially, China is now a, a socialist society. So so if you look at what the people have suffered there, they, they 70, uh, this year is the 70th anniversary of the CCP came to power in China. So the 70 years were full of killing, full of tyranny. So if you want communism or socialism, I think you should read more about China. You should read my story first to know what the socialism really is. I think many uh, young people, they they are very easy to be attracted by those rosy, you know, empty words or the, the rosy, uh, you know, description of how beautiful those things are. But the reality is just the opposite. If they know what those damage or how people have suffered, more than I think one half of the population of Chinese people have suffered uh, one kind of persecution or the, the another, uh, they would stop uh, uh, having those rosy, rosy dreams about the communism or socialism. I think it is exactly because what they already have uh, uh, in this society actually ensured not by the socialism, but by the fundamental principles of a free society. They forgot how cherishable, how valuable these things are. They start dreaming of those uh, very unfortunate uh, and think elusive things, I think. I hope people can learn the reality of communism and socialism. In in some respects, it seems like it's on display in Hong Kong, that resistance to China's aggression and what it is trying to do. What are your observations about what's taking place there now? Yes, I think the, the West, I hope the, all the young people can should really pay more, more attention um, to what's happening in Hong Kong. The young people... Uh, in Hong Kong, they really experienced what life was really about when the Communist Party tried to erode their own freedom. Some of them got so desperate. Up to now, in these several days, there were three suicide cases of young people jumping out of the, the building to protest against this so-called extradition bill uh, and, uh, and I think essentially against the Communist Party's erosion of Hong Kong's freedom, they knew what life was like. So the Hong Kong people are really waking up to the illusion of this so-called one country, two system society. And they, they knew how valuable their uh, initial freedom and the rule of law was. So they are really fighting with their life. Uh, to against the Communist Party's erosion of Hong Kong, I think they deserve more help from the West, especially from the United States and the United Kingdom. We own them support.
Chris, I want to finish this with a comment from you. There may be some who say, why are we having this conversation? Why isn't it relevant uh, to, to all of the things that are going on today? Can you share with us why it is important that we focus on these stories? Why is communism still relevant today? It's, it's just all in the dustbin of history. We reached the end of history in communism law, so why are we still talking about this? Well, <clears throat> there are still five captive nations in the world, starting with China, Cuba, Vietnam, Laos, North Korea. That's 1.5 billion people. It's still relevant to them. That's a lot of people. Also, uh, in, in, uh, there's a communist, uh, uh, an elected communist government in Nepal. Things are not going well there. The intelligence agencies are being weaponized. The press is being shut down. Communists are doing what they do everywhere. Uh, so it's relevant to the people in Nepal. There have already been 300 people who have attempted to escape from Cuba on rafts so far this year. It's relevant to them. It's also relevant because in the 2018 elections, there were 50, 50 openly socialist candidates running for political office in the United States. So, um, and also there's a, um, a openly declared socialist candidate running for president this year. The uh, Denver City Council, there was just a, a woman elected there who promised that she would bring in common ownership. There it is, the quintessential definition of, of socialism, common ownership by any means necessary. So we're entering into a period in the United States where socialism is on the rise again. Now, we've been here before. I forget precisely when and who it was, but the, uh, maybe it was William Jennings Bryan, but there was somebody who was a socialist candidate who kept running for president way back when. And uh, that, that candidate, and forget who it was, came within 34 electoral college votes of being elected president of the United States as an openly declared socialist. So this is not the first time we've been here, but here we are again. It's back. And Chris, how can our listeners find more about the work that the anti-communism action team does? If a college student wants to bring some of these speakers to their campus, how do they get in touch with you? Sure. We have a website. It's called uh, www.spiderandthefly.com with dashes between the words, spider dash and dash, etc. You can reach us at mail at spiderandthefly.com, again, with dashes between the words. Um, we have uh, a weekly roundup of anti-communism news that people can sign up for through the email address or through the website. Um, our speakers bureau, speakers, wonderful speakers like Jennifer and Darian. We have both subject matter experts and people who have survived communism. We're available available all over the country through video conferencing. We've been on four college campuses so far this year, and we're happy to do this um, anywhere in the country to a, a group that you think could benefit from this message. Chris, thank you for the work that you're doing. Jennifer and Darian, we appreciate you sharing your stories with us. This is Rob Bluey for The Daily Signal. You can find a full transcript of the interview at dailysignal.com. If you're tired of high taxes, fewer health care choices, and bigger and bigger government, it's time to partner with the most impactful conservative organization in America. We're the Heritage Foundation, and we're committed to solving the issues America faces. Together, we'll fight back against the rising tide of homegrown socialism, and we'll fight for conservative solutions that are making families more free and more prosperous. But we can't do it without you. Please join us at heritage.org. Thanks for sending us your letters to the editor. Each Monday, we feature our favorites on this show and in the Morning Bell email newsletter. Virginia, who's up first? 
In response to Kelsey Buller's article, these eight graphics explain how bad the illegal immigration crisis really is. Greg Miller writes, The United States needs an additional 1,000 immigration law judges, short-term, to eliminate the backlog of cases. Then we could handle the asylum cases at the border within 72 hours of arrival. Since only 20% are legitimate, the rest should be immediately deported. No catch and release. And in response to Fred Lucas's article, 2020 election meddling by China, Iran, North Korea likely, Will Martin writes, Persons registering to vote must be required to present a certified copy of their birth certificates, if U.S.-born, and naturalization certificate otherwise. This should be a federal law that applies to all elections at every level of government. Fraudulent votes dilute the votes of legal citizens. Motor voter laws have opened the floodgates for voter fraud. All a person has to do is check the citizen of the USA box, and no one ever verifies it. And early voting is truly insane as it allows fraudsters to be registered and to vote in multiple jurisdictions in the same election. Your letter could be featured on next week's show. Send an email to letters at dailysignal.com or leave a voicemail message at 202-608-6205. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? If you want to understand what's happening at the court, subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a Heritage Foundation podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court. Every Monday, we enjoy bringing you a good news story to start your week. Virginia, over to you. Thank you, Rob. Beginning in 1961, the Medal of Honor has been awarded to members of our armed services who have gone above and beyond the call of duty. Two weeks ago, President Donald Trump awarded Army Staff Sergeant David G. Bellavia with the Medal of Honor, making him the first living Iraq war veteran to receive the recognition. It was a highly emotional ceremony as the president recognized Staff Sergeant Bellavia's bravery in the line of duty. During Operation Phantom Fury in Fallujah, Iraq in 2004, Bellavia's platoon was tasked with clearing 12 buildings in the city. The first nine were cleared quickly, and then came the 10th. That was a tough one. It was a three-story building surrounded by a nine-foot wall. As they entered the house and moved into the living room, two men were behind concrete barricades. They opened fire on David and everybody. In the dark of night, Shards of glass, brick and plaster flew into the air, wounding multiple soldiers. The rounds of fire ripped holes into the wall, separating the Americans from the terrorists. The wall was ripped to shreds. David knew they had to get out. David thought that they had had it. He leapt into the torrent of bullets and fired back at the enemy without even thinking. The insurgents, he just took over. David took over. He provided suppressive fire while his men evacuated, rescuing his entire squad at the risk of his own life. Only when his men were all out did David exit the building. But the fighting was far from over. Militants on the roof fired down at them with round after deadly round. A Bradley fighting vehicle came to the scene to suppress the enemy and drove them further into the building. 
Knowing that he would face almost certain death, David decided to go back inside the house and make sure that not a single terrorist escaped alive or escaped in any way. He quickly encountered an insurgent who was about to fire a rocket-propelled grenade at his squad. David once again jumped into danger and killed him before he had a chance to launch that grenade. The president continued to describe Staff Sergeant Bellavia's bravery that night as he cleared the building, not only accomplishing the mission he was tasked with, but saving the lives of the men in his platoon. What a powerful reminder right after celebrating Independence Day that you know freedom is not actually free. It comes with a price and that we're able to enjoy the blessings of liberty today because of the sacrifice and the bravery of men and women just like Staff Sergeant Bellavia. We certainly do. Virginia, thank you for sharing that story with us today. Thank you, Rob. Well, we're going to leave it there for today. The Daily Signal podcast comes to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. You can find it on the Ricochet Audio Network, along with our other podcasts. All our shows can be found at dailysignal.com slash podcasts. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to listen every weekday by adding the Daily Signal podcast as part of your Alexa flash briefing. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review or give us feedback. It means a lot to us and helps us spread the word to others. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Daily Signal and Facebook.com slash The Daily Signal News. Have a great week. The Daily Signal podcast is executive produced by Rob Bluey and Virginia Allen. Sound designed by Lauren Evans and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.